0: I want to begin by thanking all of you around the world that are watching online. For many of you, it's the evening where you live. So thank you for spending part of your Lord's Day with us. A lot has been going on around here at the hills as we are celebrating Christmas. I want to give a quick shout out and a thank you to all of you that helped. With our children's Christmas musical last Sunday evening on this stage, over a 100 children were dressed up and did a marvelous job. And many of their teachers and helpers were awesome as well. And then yesterday at the Southlake and West Fort Worth campuses of our church, there was breakfast for Santa and hundreds and hundreds of people from the community came to both campuses and 175 people volunteered and gave up much of their Saturday, to be a blessing to the community. So thank you if you're involved in any of those three wonderful celebrations of Christmas. I love the way Christmas just breaks out at the hills. I love the way Christmas breaks out anywhere and everywhere. Uh, I like the story of the young boy that went to the zoo for the first time, and he had never seen a peacock. And he was so shocked when that bird suddenly presented all of its brilliant plumage. That night his father said, What do you think of the zoo? He said, dad, you won't believe it. I saw a Christmas tree come out of a chicken (laughs) because Christmas has a way of just showing up for you would never expect it. Like, for example, in the gospel of Matthew. Now, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus. We call them the gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And they're telling the same story, but they're telling the story with a different slant because each author is writing to a different audience. Now, Matthew is writing especially to a Jewish audience, trying to convince them that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah. And it's interesting that he would be given that assignment because Matthew was formerly a tax collector. Considered by the Jewish people a traitor and a reject. Writing about another person they had rejected. And so he tells the story with a very particular agenda. He doesn't start like the other Gospels. Luke starts the birth story of Jesus with angels and with singing and with birth announcements. Matthew starts the story of Jesus with what reads like... A Hebrew phone book. Uh, Let me show you what I mean. This is how the Gospel of Matthew starts. These are the very first words of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nation, Nation, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Notice right off the bat. The story of Jesus doesn't start once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away, because this is not a fairy tale. Whether you buy the whole story of Jesus, miracles and death and resurrection or not, what you have to remember and admit, he was a real character. There was a real man named Jesus. He was from Nazareth. This story that Christmas begins is rooted in actual space and time. And that would have been critical for Matthew's audience. Because in Jewish culture, your genealogy was your resume. It's what established your legal and your social status in their society. Uh, For example, in the Old Testament, there's a book called Ezra. Ezra was a man who led a group of Jewish people from Babylon back to Palestine. And he was setting up the temple to worship in it again. And some guys showed up that said, we're Levites. That means we're supposed to help work in the temple. Ezra's first question is, where's your ancestry? Where's your genealogy? They said, we don't have the records. We lost them. You can't serve them. Your genealogy made you legit. You see, Matthew knows his audience. And he knows that Jewish people, the very first thing they're going to think when you say someone is the Messiah is, who's his daddy? Is he legit? Can you prove that he is a direct descendant of King David? Because I don't care what else you do or say, if you aren't a descendant of David, you cannot be the Messiah. And it's interesting, Jesus' critics challenged him on many fronts But they never challenged his genealogy. Because they knew, the records proved it, he was a direct descendant of King David. So Matthew starts that way. But he's not just providing a genealogy. He is providing a theology in the least expected place. Because four times at the start of this genealogy, Matthew includes... Some of the black sheep in Jesus' family tree. Typically, in those days, when you gave a genealogy, you skipped a few names. In fact, Matthew skipped a few names. You took out the names that might make you look bad. Matthew does the exact opposite. He takes some of the ugliest skeletons from Jesus' closet and puts them in the record. So any of Matthew's readers would have wondered, why the who's? Why don't you put people in the record that make him look as good as he can look? It reminds me of a story a woman named Nancy Jordan tells. She put this in Reader's Digest a few years ago that she got a phone call from a salesman giving her the opportunity for a second mortgage. But she applied that she did not need one. Then he asked, would you like to consolidate all of your debt? But she replied that she had no debt. Well, this guy is determined to make her a loan. So he says, would you like to free up some cash then to do some remodeling on your house? And she explained she had just totally remodeled her house, paid for it all, had no debt. There was silence on the phone. And then the man said... Are you looking for a husband? (laughs) Because this is the kind of person you're looking for. Someone with no seeming flaws. Someone with a record that is spotless. Someone that's going to make you look good. And there were women like that for Matthew to choose. Matriarchs, everyone honored like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. And instead, he goes into the closet. And he pulls out these ugly skeletons. Maybe you don't know those stories. The first woman he mentioned was Tamar. She was a Canaanite. She married one of Judah's sons. He died. Their custom was then for her to marry the brother. He died too. Judah does not want to marry his last son to her. If she has no children, she has no future She dresses like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law to get pregnant. I'm not making this up. This is not Jerry Springer. This is right in the Bible. (laughs) Rahab was a prostitute. Not a dress-up, but a real prostitute. In the book of Joshua, some spies are sent to spy out the city of Jericho And they go into Rahab's house. Now, the reason no one thought it strange that men would just walk into her house is because men did that all the time. And they promised her, if you'll keep us safe, when we come and destroy this city, we'll save your life. Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites were a nation started by incest. They were despised by Jewish people. And then Uriah's wife, you might know her as Bathsheba. Had the most famous affair in history. And committed adultery with King David. In fact, reading Jesus' genealogy ought to make you feel better about some of your relatives. (laughs) Because we all have squirrels in our family tree. And if you're thinking... I don't have any squirrels in my family tree. You're the squirrel. <laughs> Let me tell you a little about my family tree and one of my favorite ancestors. This is my Papa Archie. For many years, the only Christian in my family was my father's mother. My mother's parents were not Christians. Never went to church. My Paul, like many of your ancestors. Was a product of the depression. He had to quit school after 7th grade. To work. He worked hard. But life was hard. He didn't know the Lord. So to cope. He went to a bottle. He was an alcoholic. For years. And years. But he loved me. My dad was in the Air Force when I was born. So for the first nine months of my life, my mom and I lived with my papa. He ran a Sinclair gas station in Moody, Texas. Mom would go to work. My papa and my nanny would put me in a straw basket and take me up to that station and keep me under the desk. Later, when my dad got out of the Air Force, he got a job with Sears and we were sent to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my papa and my uncle Lee and my nanny... Would close that station on Friday night, drive all night long to Albuquerque so they could spend Saturday and Sunday morning with me, and then drive back to open their station Monday morning. They did that 36 times in three years. One of those times, my mom convinced my papa to come to church, something he'd never done. He fell asleep and started snoring. My nanny ribbed him and he woke up and said, is that blankety-blank preacher still talking? <laughs> See, some of you learn bad words at school. I learned bad words listening to my papa. He's part of my story. He's part of my tree. He's my who's. And the good news is that Christmas is for who's. Like, for example, women. All four of these unique additions to the genealogy are women. And that's strange because they were hardly ever listed in genealogies because in a patriarchal society, a woman couldn't enhance your status. The ancient world just wanted to know who's your daddy. Jesus was born into a world in which women... We're basically viewed as property. For example, there's a story in the Gospel of John where Jesus is at a well. His disciples have gone into town to get some food. And a woman shows up. She's a Samaritan. And she has a very shady past. When the disciples come back, the text doesn't say, and they were surprised that he was talking to a Samaritan. It doesn't say they were surprised that he was talking to a sinful person. It says They were surprised that he was talking to a woman. Because rabbis did not do that. They didn't waste their time and their knowledge on people viewed as inferior. But Matthew's genealogy foreshadows the introduction of a radically new perspective. I'm going to make a bold statement. But I'm going to argue that even a secular historian is going to agree with this statement. That no man in history has done more to elevate the status of women than Jesus of Nazareth. If you just look historically at the evolving views of the worth and dignity of women, you can trace them back to a time in history and to a place and to a person. No rabbi welcomed women like Jesus did. They could travel with him. They could crash all-guy parties and stay because he gave them permission. They were at his cross when the men deserted him. In fact, it was to women that Jesus first gave the privilege of proclaiming his resurrection. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke that is so radical, and we miss it because we don't know their culture. In this story, two sisters, Mary and Martha, are throwing a party for Jesus. Now, Martha is where the women thought they belonged, in the kitchen, getting the food ready. Mary is in with the men. It says she was sitting at his feet. And Martha is upset and tells Jesus... Send Mary back in here. It's not just that she wanted help in the kitchen. It's that she crossed a line. Sitting at the feet was discipleship language. Mary was in there expecting Jesus to teach her how to be a disciple just like the other guys. He was training her to be a witness and a proclamation of His kingdom. And no rabbi had ever done this before. And frankly, the world and even the church needs to catch up to Jesus on this issue. We still live in a world where the objectification of women is tolerated. Where they're often simply viewed as objects to be stared at, to be photographed or filmed and ogled. To be demeaned with language. And we still excuse it as just guys engaging in locker room talk. No. A man that follows Jesus does not rob women of the dignity God gave them. Women were invited to Jesus' birthday party. And not just to serve in the kitchen. Who else was invited? The helpless. See, one striking truth about those women was their vulnerability. Tamar's future was completely in the hands of Judah. Rahab's Future depended completely on some spies she barely knew keeping a promise. You read the story of Ruth, you realize she has no option as a poor, foreign woman but to seek welfare from somebody else. Bathsheba had no alternative when the king summoned for her to come to his bedchamber. None of these women could save themselves. And that's Matthew's point. Have you ever heard the phrase God helps those who help themselves? That's not in the Bible. It's not just non-biblical, it is unbiblical. Christmas says God helps those who could not help themselves. And who weren't even asking for help. Because God doesn't do relationships like we often do Christmas cards. You know what I mean. You send somebody a card for two or three years and you never get a card back and you take them off the list next year, don't you? Because we tend to invest in relationships where we get a return. God's not like that. It's not because you offer God something or because God needs you. You were helpless. Jesus didn't come because you needed to be repaired. He came because you needed to be rescued. He came to choose the who's. Which includes the outsiders. You see, right off the bat again... A Jewish person reading this record says, why did he have to go there? Why did he have to start off this story by telling me that in our past there was a Canaanite and a Moabite and a Hittite? See, all of these races were viewed by Jewish people as outside of the purposes of God. As a PR man, Matthew is doing a terrible job of image management. But Matthew's not a PR man. Matthew is a preacher and a theologian. And he's taking his Jewish readers all the way back to the promise that God made to Abraham that through your seed, I will bless all the nations of the world. And that's why only Matthew tells us a story about Jesus' birth That some men showed up from the east. They were called magi. They were not just outsiders by their race. They were outsiders by their profession because they were stargazers. And the Old Testament forbid that. But Matthew wants you to know that outsiders were invited to Jesus' birthday party. Some of you have been to Israel and you've probably visited this church. This is called the Church of the Nativity. It is supposedly built over the spot where Jesus was born. Back in the 300s, something called the Council of Nicaea ordered that churches be built over spots where Jesus did important things. So this church was first built in the 300s. That church was destroyed. This church was built in 565 A.D. So it's about 1,500 years old. But just 50 years after it was built. Persian armies showed up in Palestine and started destroying all the churches. Do you know why they didn't destroy this church? The armies went inside and over the spot dedicated to the birth of Jesus, there was a mosaic of Persian men wearing Persian clothes, bowing down before a baby. And the commander said, if this church has room for people like us, it needs to be saved. Later, Matthew's going to tell us another story that only he tells. King Herod wanted to kill the baby. So Joseph and Mary, with hardly any money, very poor, had to go leave their home. Go to a foreign country, Egypt. That's right. Don't forget that Jesus was a refugee. He lived for years as a boy, as an immigrant. It makes me sad when I see Christian people speak harshly of refugees and immigrants. Do You know, one out of every hundred people in the world today is displaced from their home. Almost all of them. Simply trying, like Jesus' family, to stay alive because they will get killed if they stay where they are. Let's remember our story. The Christmas story has room for people of other places and other faces and other races. In fact, some of the most exciting things happening in the world today in evangelism are where Christians are being nice to immigrants. Uh... The Breakpoint podcast just recently told some exciting stories. There's a church in Berlin that in the last three years has seen 1,200 Muslim immigrants accept Jesus as Savior because the Christians were nice to them when they came to their country. And one church in Hamburg this past year on one Sunday had 600 Muslim immigrants stand in line to get baptized Because the church was kind to them. Because the church remembered her story. Jesus' birthday invitation has some radical views about the who's. Because it even includes sinners. Matthew could have picked women with cleaner reputations. Instead, he picked A woman that seduced her father in law. He picked a woman who was a former prostitute. He picked a woman that betrayed her husband to sleep with a powerful man. You know, Jesus' ancestors belong on the Dr. Phil show. And that's the point. Jesus didn't just come from people like his relatives. He came for people like his own relatives. That's one reason he's the Messiah, because he came out of a mess. And he came for the mess. Like Matthew. Why is Matthew telling the story like this? Because Matthew was a mess. And he knew it. He was a scandal. And he knew it. Matthew knew that nobody wanted his name on their list to invite to anything. Until Jesus showed up. Because Jesus wanted people like Matthew to come to his party. You see, Christmas reminds us that scandalous people aren't just part of the story. They're the point. Of the story. Uh, I read a testimony by a a radiologist named Dr. Bill Cook. And when he was doing his residency in Memphis, he was excited one day to be assigned to the leading surgeon of the city. So he goes into the operating room. The body's all prepped. And the doctor says, today we're going to do an appendectomy. And turned and gave young Bill Cook the scalpel. And young Bill Cook said... I'm not ready. I've never done this before. And the old doctor said, son, there's nothing you can do that I can't fix. That's the gospel. Paul would say later, the gospel is offensive to many. He even uses the Greek word scandalous. You see, the scandal of redemption is the redemption of scandal. There's nothing you can do that God can't fix. And you know who that's good news for? Everybody. Christmas is good news for all genders, for all races, for all moral failures, which is all of us. At the birthday table, all sit down as equals, men and women, Jews and Gentiles, Prostitutes and preachers we 're all equally sinful and lost we 're all equally forgiven and loved. You see the birth of Jesus gave birth to the most inclusive faith the world has ever seen, because God has a heart and a place for the who's. it isn't that different from how God has often. Represented, he's often pictured as distant and suspicious and he's spying on you because he's got a list writing down every mistake you make. It reminds me of the story of the young man that took his date home. They were on her porch. He put his hand up against the wall and went in for a goodnight kiss and she declined. He tried again, said, I'm afraid my folks would catch us. Oh, please let me kiss you goodnight. No, what if they find out? This went on for a couple of minutes. Finally, the front door opened and her little sister said, Dad says, go ahead and kiss him. Or I can kiss him. Or Dad will come downstairs and kiss him. But tell him to take his finger off the button on the intercom. And so many of us were raised on a narrative that God is just watching. And waiting for you to mess up. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out if you've been naughty or nice. Sorry, that's the wrong person. The God of heaven sent Jesus to take the list of all your failures and nail it to a cross so it would never haunt you again. See, God has seen it all. (laughs) You're not going to shock God. You're not going to surprise God. There's no skeleton in your closet that's going to cause him to turn away. There's no story that cannot be set right by the story that started in Bethlehem. Here's something you need to memorize and rejoice in every day. It's a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Like my papa. This picture is taken in the home I grew up in in Oak Cliff. It's the 1970s. Can you see the paneled wall and the shag carpet? We really thought that looked good back then. And that big long thing in the back, that was our iPad. We called it the stereo. And my papa and my nanny came up because I was was going to preach my first ever sermon. Sixteen years old. And they wanted to hear it. And a few months later, my grandparents were baptized. They started going to church. They'd never done that before. They became followers of Jesus. And a couple of years after this picture, my papa had a stroke. He never left bed. He spent the last three years of his life listening all day long to old cassette tapes of my sermons as a young preacher. My papa died on Christmas Day. 1980. And so for about 35 years, I take a moment every Christmas, and I just get alone with the Lord, and I thank Him that there's room at the table for whose. You see, nobody's too anything for God. Nobody's too black, too white, too Republican, too Democrat, too rich, too poor, too uneducated. Nobody's too addicted. Nobody's too divorced. Nobody's too in prison. Nobody is too anything for God. There's a baseball scout named Tony Licodeo. You've never heard of him, but he's considered the greatest scout of all time. He sent more young men to the major leagues than any other scout. And he's unusual because he doesn't have a radar gun. He doesn't use a stopwatch. He says most scouts are performance scouts. They just see what the boys can do. I'm a projector scout. I see the hitch in the swing. I see the quirky throw in motion. But I can see what he will be if he gets the right coaching. You see, Christmas teaches us to look at people, not from their worst moment or what they did, but who they can be when they meet Jesus. And so let me ask you a question. Who's your who's? Who's that person whose story embarrasses you? Who's that person you might have stopped praying for? Who's that person who's far from God? Because maybe today what you need to hear is that nobody's worst moment has to be their final story. Any name can be linked to Jesus' name. Even yours. Because remember, the Messiah can do a lot with a mess. So would you bow your head with me? And usually I ask you to pray for yourself. But today, would you pray for someone else? Next week I'm going to preach on John three sixteen, That whoever believes can have eternal life. Would you pray today for your who's? Would you pray for that person you love that's far from God? Ask for a miracle. Ask for Holy Spirit conviction. Ask that their name be linked to the name of Jesus. Pray for them right now. Oh, God, we thank you for grace. We thank you there's no story that turns you away. There's no mistake. There's no failure that you can't fix. There's no name that cannot be connected to the name above all names. Thank you for grace, God. Help us to believe this story like we never have before and share it with somebody else. For Jesus' sake, amen.